Hope y'all are well. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you don't have one, look underneath you and grab one of those little blue and white ones. And you can just keep it. It's totally yours. Uh, We will be in Acts chapter 20 today, the second half. So uh, you can open up there, stick your finger there. We'll read the text together in a second. Uh, Just want to say before we get started, uh, yesterday was our fall festival and... uh, It was awesome. We learned a lot of awesome things yesterday that we have some excellent pumpkin carvers in our in our church. They did an excellent job uh, highlighting the Reformation, the 95 theses, etc. We also learned that Jessica and Carice and crew know how to throw a party. They did a great job. I mean, that was just that was awesome. It was so much fun. Everybody had tons of fun. We also learned that we are just as people here at Remedy, uh, a lot of fun to hang out with. Whenever we're to get together and we're just hanging out with each other, it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, I enjoyed it, uh, and I think that we all enjoyed it. We also learned, and maybe the most important, that non-bearded men are actually more strong <laughs> and more manly than bearded men, and therefore, November needs to be changed to, no, don't shave November, or do shave November. So, I said it wrong. But, uh, anyway, the, uh, there was a tug of war, and the... The shaved men uh, beat the bearded men in the tug of war, and then the bearded men d- d- demanded a, uh, another one, and we're like, no, we won, we're tired, it's over. And I actually was not physically capable of doing it again anyway. I was so tired. But anyway, um, it was fun. It was really fun. Uh, it was a great, great time together, and each year we do that, it's always so fun. We, in- we invite you to please come to those things that we have together as a church where we can all hang out. Uh, as I said, we are in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, so if you have a text, you can open up to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be picking up at verse 17, verse 17. Here at Remedy, we stand as we read, so we would love it if you would stand with us, uh, and after I finish, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you would say, thanks be to God, signifying two things mainly. One, that you're thankful the Lord would give us his word, and second, the things that you learn that you want to obey, the things that you learn today in the text you want to obey. So starting at verse 17 uh, in Acts chapter 20. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance and towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, and I am innocent of the blood of, you, of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease uh, day, night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all these In all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on part of all. all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this text, and we do pray for your help this morning, that you would open all of our eyes and hearts and minds uh, to what it is you want us to hear and see, 
not just in relation to how Paul exhorts Ephesian elders, or even how this text exhorts remedy elders, but how this text exhorts every member, uh, regular attender, Christian person in this room. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and teach us all, um, and that we would, you would take this text and apply it to our hearts and minds uh, as we are living our lives for you. We pray, God, that those that are here that don't know you, that you would save them, that you would lead them to repentance and faith, as the text says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I've longed to preach this text for a long time, for a long time, uh, not just as we're going through the book of Acts, but just in my ministry for a long time. I've always wanted to preach this because there's so many, so many good things in it. And it has one of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, verse 24. And so I want to give us a little bit of understanding what's going on, uh, and then we will, we will walk through it briskly because there are several things I want to I want you to look at, uh, there's 10 things. So because of that, we have to walk through it pretty briskly. Uh, If you look at verse 17, he tells us, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So if you can go ahead and put up the map, there's there's a couple things um, that we want you to make sure you understand is that Paul is in his third missionary journey. He had left Ephesus and he, because there was a riot whenever he spent his time there. And he's gone through these different regions, as we saw last time. And he's, he's hastening, as it says, to get to Jerusalem. He really wants to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And he really wants to get to Jerusalem to bring the offering to those that are uh, very, very poor in Jerusalem. And he wants to get there as fast as he can. So he's been collecting some of the offering that he's been going through. And so instead of, on this time, going into Ephesus, he doesn't go into Ephesus. He sets sail past Ephesus and is in Miletus and then calls the Ephesian elders to him in Miletus rather than going to it. And this would be for a couple of reasons. One, uh, as we, if you read, we, he was there for three years. And so any kind of goodbye with people... Uh, all the people would take even longer, and he's hastening to get to Jerusalem. Also, which we saw, uh, there was a riot that happened, and you can see that in the second half of chapter 19 uh, with Paul there, and so uh, a lot of danger could come to him. So he does not go into Ephesus to have this discussion. Instead, he goes to Miletus uh, and calls just the elders of the church to him. So this isn't the whole church of, of Ephesus. This is just the elders, calls them to them, and exhorts the elders. And so this is a... Uh, as you look at this text, this is mainly, in, in its uh, first sense, directed towards the elders of the church. So uh, while we're looking at this, <clears throat> the direct application that we would draw would be for uh, me, Joe, Jack, and any future elders at Remedy Church. However, um, I want to also, for all of you that are here that aren't elders, uh, I want you to know how to, as we're going through this entire uh, chapter, or second half of the chapter, to apply it to your own lives. Um, so, there is a way to apply this to every single person. First, <clears throat> um, you can broaden this out to church leadership and say the things that we're going to look at here, uh, if you're in any role of church leadership at the church, these are things that you should want in your life. These, these ten things we're going to see. These are things that you should want to be doing. These are ten qualities you should have, desires of your life, whether you're in church leadership, but also if you're a community group leader, or even if you're a parent in your home, uh, these are, as parents, things, qualities you want to have as you minister to your own children. Or even as a college student, these are, uh, uh, these are things that you would want to have on campus, qualities in your own life as you want to spread the gospel in your particular uh, neck of, of the campus. Um, as well as just in general, w- whether it be at work, day to day, these are qualities you want to have in your life to be able to reach people. So there are some that are directly related towards pastors, but there are several of these that every one of us can put into our lives. So... Um, I want to uh, also, if we can, really get a handle of what's going on here. Because he says, uh, twice in this text, Luke tells us that Paul's never going to see these people again. And so just enter with me into this realm of possibility that you can realize that there's, there's 2,000 years ago, it's not necessarily really possible today, that there's chances that you'll never see someone again. All right, so, so pretend you don't have a phone. Pretend you don't have Facebook, pretend you don't have TV, pretend the only way that you could correspond with anybody uh, would be a letter, and pretend there's no post office to deliver these mails, so you you don't know for sure if it's going to get there. You know that you're not going to see them. And also, imagine going into a place, and they didn't know the gospel at all. They knew nothing. And we know that on your own money and your own dime, 
you go in there and all you want to do is see people get to be saved, that you take your own money, you work a job as hard as you can, and you, you rent out a space with your own money, and you preach the gospel for three years, pleading with the Lord that anyone would come to know Christ here. And you, you, you sow the gospel for three entire years in this one city, and many people come to know Christ. A church births, and you have given for three years of your entire life to these people to see people come to know Christ. And so for three years, just imagine the relationships that you've made in your own, in your own life that have lasted for over three years. This is a long time to have a friendship with somebody. And so you, in your own heart, you initiated it all. You desired for anything to happen. And then while you were there, a church began to birth because of your hard work and the Lord's blessing. And now uh, you have to tell all those people that you have poured your entire life into and beg the Lord to build. You have to tell them, you'll never see them again. And these are the last things you want to impart to them. Just imagine that. So this is probably one of the greatest farewell sermons, uh, or f- farewell speeches in the Bible. There are some other ones, you know, Jonathan and David, etc. Paul knew he would never see them again. And so he wants to, with everything he can, tell them some of the most important things that he, he wants them to know to go back and, and, and live in, in, in light of... Uh, Ephesian church that he's planted. So just enter in with me that you know that you can never see someone again. And you love them dearly. What are some of the last things you want to tell them? What are some of the last things you want to tell them? That's what's going on here. Paul is exhorting these Ephesian elders to, to uh, go back to this church that he started, that he loves dearly, that he'll never see again. And he says in verse 18, we're going to see... Ten qualities of pastoral, uh, pastoral qualities necessary to display the glory of Christ. So you can go ahead and put up number one. It's right there in verse 18. It says, and they came to him and he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. Among you the whole time. First quality is you, you need to be with them. The, in, in seminary, the, the old adage was uh, shepherds need to smell like sheep. If a pastor's not with his people, then they don't know him. And so shepherds need to smell like sheep. Now, because also a shepherd is a sheep with you. I'm just, Jesus is really all of our chief shepherd, and I'm, I'm a sheep with you. So pastors, uh, or if, if in any ministry, you need to be with people. We must be living in and out of the day, uh, going um, with you among the things that are going on in your life. We need to be uh, involved in your lives. And you can see here how I... You know your, yourselves how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. The people in Ephesus knew that when Paul was there, he wasn't separated from them and they kind of did stuff and he was in an ivory tower away from them. But instead, he was with them and with them the entire time, walking through life with them, walking through their tragedies with them, walking through their messiness with them, being messy with them. And so, pastors... Uh, should be with the people, uh, living out in light of the gospel just like you. So that's the first exhortation that we see, uh, that that Paul was actually with them, knowing their needs. And also, uh, and this is one of the most important things that you should know, that I know it's the the desire of, of the elders here at Remedy, that you know that we are in need of the gospel just as much as you are. There's no difference between us and you and our need for the gospel. We are just as sinful as you are just as hopeful, hoping into uh, the gospel. And so when we're living out our messy lives with you, saying, here's my mess, and, and praise be to God that he's given us the gospel as well, just like you. And so uh, you wouldn't know that if we're not with you. We're not walking in through life with you. So that's the first thing, the first thing. But also, uh, he, he points them to the second quality is that pastors should serve humbly. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, and with tears and with trials, what happened to me and <clears throat> the plots of the Jews. And so we see here that uh, the second thing is that uh, in any ministry that you're in, you should do this with a humble attitude. Paul, uh, his humility that he had with them of serving was just like Christ, who was the ultimate example of humility, as we see in Philippians chapter 2. And he describes this, this service that he has among the Ephesians in three ways. One that he was humble, uh, because, and this illustrates his posture before God. You can also see, uh, I served you with all humility and with tears and with trials. So he served them in three ways. He served them with humility, he served them with tears, and he served them with trials. 
Uh, the first one, as I said, humility illustrates his posture before God, that, that he, never, he doesn't want pride to take over. He doesn't want to think that he's better, but instead that it's always about Christ. The second one, that he served them with tears, uh, illustrating his tenderness towards the church, that he wanted to be tender towards them at all times, but he also served them with trials. And so as persecutions and came, and we saw even in, verse, in chapter 19, the riot that came, this illustrates that he... Even in the midst of trials, wants to be faithful to God and courageous in whatever happens. And so whenever we see these three things, these are the kind of three things that whenever uh, we want to serve as pastors or you would want to serve in your prospective ministries or even in your families or in your workplace, you want to be humble because the gospel shows us that we should be the most humble people there are. Uh, Christians... uh, realize more than anybody that we don't deserve grace. And so we should be the most humble people because Jesus has given us far more than we deserve. We are beggars uh, who know where the bread is trying to show other people where bread is, as D.A. Carson, that's a loose kind of uh, quote. Uh, But also, the gospel makes us tender. He says that we should serve in a tender way, and the gospel makes us tender because no one has been more tender to us than Christ. The Holy Spirit has has saved us uh, by... giving us the gift of faith and repentance. And so we should be some of the most tender people there are. But also, uh, the gospel makes us courageous. We can serve in trials because we can be courageous because we realize that we no longer have to fear man. There's no fear of man in our own hearts and lives because uh, the Lord has has promised us that we're his sons and daughters and that we don't have to live by uh, trying to please men. We certainly want to uh, love people But we don't have to try to please them because the gospel has already shown us that we are perfectly, uh, we are perfectly loved by Jesus now. And so we don't have to fear men anymore. Those, that's the second one we see. The third thing we see is this. This is verse 20, 21, and 27. 27. He says it in a couple different ways. But the third thing, you can go ahead and put it up, is that we should teach the gospel and God's word. Just teach the gospel. Verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teach you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see in verse 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So in both of those places, Paul illustrates to the Ephesian elders something that's absolutely necessary, a quality that's absolutely necessary in being a pastor, which is that we should always teach the gospel. Never shrink from teaching the gospel. As a matter of fact, you can see uh, the different places and the different people that Paul says he teaches them to, teaches the gospel to. How to not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Public as in where I, I, I gave my own money uh, and I, I rented out the hall of Tyrannus and, and preached the gospel there myself, but also how I went from house to house teaching the gospel. How I taught the Jews and how, how I also taught the, the Greeks. And the message that I taught them was repentance and faith. So he declared, he didn't, dec- dec- he didn't shrink from declaring anything that's profitable. He taught the whole counsel of God. When you read the whole counsel of God in verse 27, uh, Stott says this uh, pretty, pretty effectively. He, this is not, he taught them the whole Bible. Like ver- every verse he exposited, every text. Because he was there three years. And I've been here nine, and I haven't gotten close to doing that, right? So and he did just have the Old Testament. But I don't think that that's what it means, that literally he exposited every single text in the sermon while he was there. Instead, to, to declare the whole counsel of God is to declare the entire plan of God's salvation for all of us, for all mankind. And every time he teaches, and in every way he does that, he wants to tell them the entire plan of salvation and how God's saving us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he didn't, he didn't shrink back from candy-coating it or, or trying to make things look better than it was. This is it. Like... We're wretched sinners, but praise be to God that he gave us Jesus Christ who saves us and declares us now if we, put our faith in, if we repent and put our faith in him, he declares us holy, righteous, blameless. Uh, and so he said, I didn't, I didn't shrink back from doing any of these, thing, these things. So in your own lives, how can you do that effectively? How can you never shrink back from teaching the gospel effectively to your children, to your spouse, to your family, to your coworkers, or even us as elders to this church? Um, <clears throat> if we want to, I think, preach the gospel faithfully uh, to whoever, whomever God has, has directed us, I think the one step back is that the gospel must continually, not at one time, not just once, but continually affect us. So 
the more that we grow into our knowledge of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us, the more that we are continually shaped by the good news of Jesus and affected by it in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own souls, then the more we can effectively preach and teach the good news of people. So uh, when, we, when you look at this quality of that you must be able to teach the gospel, always remember the caveat is, if I'm going to do that, the, the main step is that I'm constantly preaching and teaching it to my own heart first, and that it's shaping who I am continually so that I can preach and teach it effectively to others. Because you can spot a fraud right, right away. And so if it's not continually shaping my own heart, I would hope that immediately you can notice that. Or, or Joe and Jack, we would hope that you would immediately, you could notice that, you know what, I don't know that this gospel you preach is, is doing anything to your own heart. So how can you effectively teach it to me if it's not affecting you? And so um, we should continually preach the gospel. Uh, we shouldn't shrink back. We shouldn't, as Second Timothy 4, 2 says, uh, declare it only in season, but we should declare it in season and out of season. That there will come a time where people will amass speakers for themselves to give them messages, to tickle their ears. And that's not what, what we're called to do. Pastors are called to preach the gospel both in season and out of season. The whole gospel, declaring the, the whole counsel of God. So, the good news is this. So when we say you should preach the gospel, the good news, the gospel is this. This is Paul talking to elders. This is Paul talking to elders. And so, uh, the good news is that your ultimate hope is not in your elders. The good news is that your, your ultimate hope is in the chief shepherd, as 1 Peter 5, 4 says, or the great shepherd, as Hebrews thirteen twenty says. Your hope is in the great shepherd. And the, uh, the good news is this. I'll, I'll, I can give it to you in one verse. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus was in heaven, rich as could be, receiving all the praises of all the, all the, uh, the, the angels and all the saints before, and then he was willing to obey the, the, the will of God the Father to lower himself and become a human. And though we think we're awesome, <laughs> it's a huge step down to become a human. So that richness into stepping into poverty is not just... Um, that he was poor when he was here, and he was poor. He owned nothing. Jesus owned nothing. He didn't have a house, he didn't have a car. He just had his clothes. And the, the Son of Man has nowhere, nowhere to lay his head, as it says in, I think it's Luke 9. Um, so he, he, uh, he was very poor physically, but he also became poor by becoming a man. And in that, whenever he was obedient to that, it was actually for our sake that he became poor so that by his poverty and being willing to go all the way to the cross, if we trust in his work and his death on the cross, we actually become rich as receiving an inheritance. We now can go to heaven, be forgiven of our sin, and be with Jesus forever. We receive the inheritance as sons and daughters of God. This is the good news that we, we teach. And this is I mean, that's, that's the gospel in one verse. You can find it everywhere in the, in the Bible. That's the good news that we proclaim to everyone, to trust in Christ. As this particular verse in verse 21 says, we testify to everyone that they need to have repentance and faith. These are gifts from the Holy Spirit that he gives to us. He gives us the gift of repentance. He gives us the gift of faith. And we exercise those back towards the Lord and then we are saved. So uh, the next one is this. I know I'm moving through these briskly, but... There are, there are several. <laughs> uh, if you go to verse 22, uh, the next quality that a leader, church leader, pastor, elder should have, 22 and 23. And now, because I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. What we can see in both of those verses is the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit is mentioned. Not only is he mentioned, but as we read it, uh, it's clear that Paul is following the Holy Spirit. You can see he's constrained by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has testified to him. So the, the fourth thing, that uh, fourth quality of a pastor is that he needs to follow 
the Holy Spirit's leading. The main context here we should note uh, is his, his going to Jerusalem involves two things. One, which I've already said, yes, he wants to make haste because he wants to bring the offering and be there at Pentecost. Uh, so the, following the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem is, in a, in, a, in a very good sense, bringing some things that are good. Uh, bringing about a, a nice offering to those who are poor in Jerusalem so they, they can have food and shelter and not die. And also he gets to be there at Pentecost. But notice what the text tells us. Following the Holy Spirit's lead doesn't necessarily always bring the desired outcome of me. That's not what's going on. He says in verse 22, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So he wants to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonments and afflictions await me. So the following of the Holy Spirit, even for pastor elders and even for you in your own ministry, the Holy Spirit isn't always going to lead you into, you know, awesome things that you think are great. They are awesome ultimately. But sometimes the Holy Spirit's leading means that we can be led by the Holy Spirit into persecution and suffering for the glory of Jesus, not our own self. And so Paul wants and is willing absolutely to follow the Holy Spirit's leading. And your elders and future elders should always desire this, to be led by the Holy Spirit This means, ultimately, that a good minister does not follow the Holy Spirit's leading only when it's beneficial to him. But a good minister follows the Holy Spirit's leading no matter what. Even if it means persecution, he puts Jesus' desires and the needs of the church first above his own. And so, when God's leading the church, it can sometimes mean that he's leading us into difficult times. And so the pastor needs to be willing to obey the Holy Spirit into those leadings as well. Uh, The the next one we can see is going to be in verse 24. And this this is, uh, if you don't have a life verse, I know that that's kind of a weird thing to call it a life verse because the whole Bible should be whatever. But like, this one's awesome. This one's really awesome. I have loved this text ever since someone pointed it out to me back in college. Because I forgot to read the Bible when I was a kid because my church didn't tell me to. Anyway, um, verse 24. Um, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. When I first read that, I just, that changed my entire worldview. Because I had only thought to think of myself as precious. I had only thought as everything should revolve around me. I I had only thought that my life is of such great value that everything's about me. And so if if you can't even get past the first clause, I mean, which is a rough clause to get through, that is a completely different mindset and worldview to take on. But I do not account of my life of any value. Now, of course, ultimately, this doesn't mean that God doesn't account your life of value. Of course he does. But Paul's saying, in comparison to following the will of Jesus, his, his will always takes, takes trump. It always, it always is first. But I do not account of my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, when I think about what the Lord has said to me, I want to do what he says. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This might be maybe the most important quality. Treasure Jesus supremely. I love this verse. It just shows the heart of Paul about how, really, no matter what's going on, and you can, you might not have three missionary journeys and you go to Rome and you want to get to Spain and you die eventually in a Roman prison. That's not like your, that's not your life, right? But when we look at that, you say, man, he, he treasured Jesus supremely. But you can treasure Jesus supremely in your own life here in Rock Hill. You don't have to have Paul's story. I love this verse because it just challenges me um, to not put myself first in any way but to put Jesus first. And when I put Jesus first, it means that I want to finish my course. What's your course? I don't know, you know. Jesus wants you to finish your course, not Paul's course. Jesus doesn't want you to finish your neighbor's course, your wife's course. He wants you to help your wife finish her course, but he wants you to finish your course. And primarily, one of the things that you'll be doing is testifying to the ministry or, or testifying to the gospel of grace. Your life should be dominated by telling others about Jesus. Tony Marita, looking at this verse, says this. It's a a brilliant comment. The goal of life is not to have a long one, but a full life. One lived to the glory of Jesus Christ. One lived to the glory 
of Jesus Christ. And so we want to treasure Jesus supremely. We want to tre- treasure. It's like the man in Matthew 6 found a treasure buried in the field. He went off. He sold everything that he had. He knew, that, he knew it was going to be costly to buy the field and he didn't have enough, didn't have enough money. So he went back. He sold everything he had so that he could get enough money to come back and buy that field. The kingdom of heaven is just like this. We're willing to give everything away so that we can treasure Jesus supremely. So as ministers, we need to. The, the reason why I say this is maybe one of the most important is because I don't think there is a ministry if we're not treasure Jesus supremely. What, what are we doing if he's not our, our, our supreme treasure? We're, how can we pastor? How can we elder? How can you lead your ministries? How can you lead your community group? How can you lead your family towards Jesus if he's not your, your supreme treasure? Um, yeah, I, I can even just think in my own family, as the leader of my own family, that there's a lot of times, a lot of times, where I can point to other things as more precious than Jesus. If you ask my, fi- my family and my kids, I'm sure that they could num- would many times say, Dad treasures this the most, and that wouldn't be Jesus. That's not good. It's not good. It's not what I want, right? And so... That's, those are things that I have to continually repent of and, and ask for my, my family's forgiveness of. And so the overall dominating thing that we want to be known by is what do we treasure the most? It's not stuff, it's not clean houses, it's not whatever, but that it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The next thing that we can see uh, is this. Now this is an interesting one, and so stick with me as I'm walking you through this because you, you might wonder, why, why did he all of a sudden... Like, act like he was kind of mad at him. In verse 25 and 6, Now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have... Let's try it again. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, so here's where he says they won't see his face. He also tells us in verse 38, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. Now, you can read that and you're like, all of a sudden, he just felt like he got defensive with him. Hey, I'm innocent of your blood. What? Like, we weren't saying that you were guilty, Paul. Like, why are you getting so defensive? I don't think that that's the tone that's happening there. We shouldn't try to import the way that, that we might think that's being said. Um, I think that what he's pointing us to is this, the sixth thing, is that we should minister with a clear conscience. We should minister with a clear conscience. And I say that based on some of the things that we've seen, which is this. Um, the way that we're innocent of, his, of our hearer's blood or that we minister with a clear conscience is because, uh, precisely because the entire time that we were with them, we didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. That as we have been with them the entire time, our greatest hope was to show them that our need for Christ and show them their need for Christ and then tell them how that can happen by telling them the gospel. And so when we do that, uh, we, didn't, we weren't ruled by the fear of man. We didn't just try to candy coat the message we didn't try to just be their friend and you know give them some helpful things but never talk about sin etc and so uh, you can minister with a clear conscience if you're teaching the word of God to the people like Paul taught the people in Ephesus that you're ministering in such a way that pleases the Lord not others and so Paul can sleep every night Uh, (laughs) I've heard people say that we want to uh, don't take offense to this if if you're an Armenian or a Calvinist. We want to minister during the day like an Armenian and sleep at night like a Calvinist. Um, but the whole point is that Paul can sleep every night knowing that his ministry was conducted in such a way that he preached the gospel and he did exactly how God wanted him. He did exactly how, how God wanted him. So we can minister with a clear conscience. It's, that's one of the qualities that we want, that we, we know that we're saying and doing what the Lord wants. Whatever the Lord's directing you in, in your ministries, that you're doing it and you're not like, in the midst of it or afterwards, regretting that you wish you would have said so many more things that you were just scared to say or fearful to say. Um, Now, verse 25 and 6, we've already read verse 27, for I did not shrink. And so that's how we can also know that he's innocent because he tells us in in that verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now, whenever we get to verse 28, um, I want to to take a, a little step here that's it's not what, what if I'm, when I'm reading, it's not what I would intuit would be the next thing. I would, I would presume as he's going through this that he wouldn't say this because he's talking to the elders and he tells them, you need to be, we've already read, you need to be careful and watch, and watch out for the flock. 
it's, it's, there's going to be all kinds of dangerous things that's happening to the flock. So you need to really watch them. And this is what he says. It's interesting how he starts that or prefaces the watching of the flock by this first little clause here in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So, um, if you're going to watch over a particular group of people that the Lord has, has um, given you to watch over, he starts by saying, you need to watch over your own soul. Watch over your own soul. This is similar to treasuring Jesus supremely, like in verse 24. Um, but the seventh thing I, I want to say is, watch over your own soul. If you're going to watch over the souls of other people, number seven, you can go ahead and put up number seven, is watch over your own soul. He tells them to pay careful attention to themselves. Uh, this is easily, I think, especially in the realm of pastor, uh, in, the, in the role of pastor in a lot of churches, this is probably easily one of the most neglected of, of all the things listed here, of pastors. Um, but clearly it's one of the most crucial. Just a few quotes from some famous pastors uh, speaking to the need that pastors watch over their own soul and they watch over their own holy lives. This is the most difficult one. It starts out, Robert Murray McShane. My people's greatest need. He's a pastor talking about his church. My people's greatest need, we would think would say that I preach the word to them. My people's greatest need, or that I, I'm there all the time. My people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. That is difficult. It's quite difficult. C.S. Lewis. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. You're, you're watching your own heart and soul. Spurgeon. Dear brethren, take care of your own life. Be careful, be careful in the minutia of your character. So pastors, and that's in lectures to my students when he's talking to those who are going to be pastors. So pastors, before they watch over the flock of God, need to watch over their own soul. Holiness, not giftedness, is what's necessary for faithfulness and ministry. Holiness not giftedness. Giftedness is great. And Lord, I would love some more, right? Lord, make me more gifted to be able to do like the 45 things I feel like I'm terrible at. Like, but in the end, holiness, not giftedness, is necessary for faithfulness and ministry. And so if you really want to reach that person, that family member, that neighbor, that whatever, you don't have to be as gifted as you think you do. But... Watch over your own soul. Holiness stands out more to people than your giftedness. Don't ever stop putting sin to death. Romans 8.18, Colossians 3.5. Don't ever stop by the Spirit putting sin to death. Now, if you, you take a kind of a little New Testament step back, this is not telling, Paul telling the Ephesian elders they have to be perfect. This is taking him telling him, like 1 Timothy 3, 2, you need to be above reproach. You need to be above reproach. So he's not telling them perfection. So I'm not telling you, you need to be perfect. I'm saying, as Paul tells the Ephesians, or the Timothy who was a pastor in Ephesus, you need to be above reproach. That means they need to be above reproach. They need to pursue holiness with everything that they have. Hebrews 13, 7 says, says it this way, which if you're, <clears throat> if you're in ministry, and uh, you take it lightly, you're in danger. Hebrews 13, 7 says, to those who, are, uh, who, those who are the congregants, he says to them, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So if I just reverse that as the pastor, I, I'm, I'm hearing God say, they need to remember me because I preached the word to them and they are to imitate my Faith. Well, that is a scary verse for me, right? And so and it's the same thing as we're looking over, watching over your own soul. Uh, it's necessary, of course, just for your own personal walk with Jesus. But it's also as a pastor, elder, leader, whatever you are, the Bible tells those that, that follow you to actually imitate your life. And so, dear brethren, take care of your life and be careful in the minutia of your character. It matters immensely, immensely what you do on Tuesday night at 11.30 p.m. 
it matters to Jesus a lot what you do on Friday and Saturday nights. It matters a lot. You're free to be with people, but you're not free to sin. You're not free to sin. So it's not just Sunday morning at, well, 9, 30, 11.15 for us. I was going to say 11 because that's what I grew up with. But uh, it matters the entire week. Now, as we keep going, the next thing he says in verse 8 is, to pay careful to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves men will arise, speaking twisted things. So just notice that after Paul is leaving, he's saying that there's going to be people uh, that are going to try to destroy the church. There's going to be people from outside of the church that are going to come in and try to destroy it. And there's going to be people that are inside the church that are going to arise as, as wolves as well. There's wolves both places. They're going to come from inside and outside. And your job as pastor elder is to shoot the wolves. You, you, have, to, you have to kill them. Not necessarily like physically, right? You're not literally like choking them to death or, or killing people. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying they're, they're twisted doctrines that they're teaching that lead people astray those things, because you are a student of the word, a lover of the word, and a lover of these people that you shoot down with sound arguments and thinking and studying, you shoot those things down, not because you want to look smart, but because the people's souls are in jeopardy and you care deeply about them, so much so that you're willing to shoot the wolves. So the third thing is, uh, eighth thing, whatever we are at, in my dreams, third thing, right? You don't ever do just three things, Fun. Um, uh, <laughs> is watch over the flock. And when I say flock, I'm, don't, don't hear me calling you like animals. I'm not. It's just what the Bible uses this word, right? This, you could say the people. Watch over the people. And that'd be fine. That'd be fine. Um, and watching over means a couple things. It means a couple things. So he says, uh, watch over the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you to care for the church of God in which he obtained with his own blood. So I, when I say watch over the people, I think of this in two different ways uh, from this text. One is just to care for the church. This is kind of like that first one, be with the church. The shepherd sh- should smell like sheep, uh, is to truly have a heart about them. So not just be with them, like we saw in the first one, but care about them when you're with them. To have a heart for them, care about their lives, care about what they're doing, ask about what's going on in their lives, pray for them, be there for them, know them, truly nurture them. That's the thing, that's the first one, is care over, uh, care for them. But also it means to watch over the doctrine. Verse 29 through 31 uh, is clear that Paul is saying that he needs to watch over the teachings of what's going on. That you need to be on the theological lookout. You, you need to have a theology scope and you're always looking through it, watching for dangers that are arising all the time. You need to know what's trending locally and you need to know what's kind of trending in the big picture of either your city or your country or whatever, and what's going on. This isn't just refuting simple, obvious things like prosperity gospel, but, but small, difficult, twisted things that can come in. And this means you need to study the scriptures diligently so that when those things arise, you are able to speak in a way that's uh, going to refute those things easily and help the people. And Paul does this with tears. Paul does this with tears. He says, men will arise with twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering I did not, for three years, I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. So, this just underscores the diligence that Paul had, of course, but the tenderness that Paul had. So, shooting a wolf is not like, shot me another wolf today, mark it up. Like, this is instead, another person walked away from the faith. Or another person tried to attack the people I love. And this is, this is difficult work. I care about these people very much. And I don't want to see these things happen. So he does this with tears. The emotion of Paul is clear. That sometimes as leaders of the church, uh, it's difficult. There, there, are, there are things, and you probably know this. But there are things that elders have to see and know and, and, and go through. That you'll just never know about, right? It's just a, it's just a weight that's... It can be pretty difficult sometimes uh, because we want to. Uh, we deal with the hardest parts of your life sometimes. We deal with the hardest parts of your lives. And he transitions, this little transition verse, uh, he tells us in verse 32, 
Now I commend you to the grace of God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So I, I think this is a transition verse to get to the next one, where he's pointing them to a couple things. He's pointing them to God first, because, and now I commend you to God. So he's pointing them to the ultimate pastor, the ultimate chief shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus. So your uh, dependence and hope and trust in me and Joe and Jack and any future elders we have will eventually run out. We will, we will eventually let you down. That's just the way it is. We're finite, flawed humans. And so I think Paul's trying to help them see, always commend everybody to God, right? Always commend everybody to God, ultimately. The, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4, Hebrews 13, 20. Because I will eventually let you down. So don't, don't put your ultimate hope in your elders. Put it in God. But he also is not just commending them to God. He's also commending to the word. I, I commend you to God, but I also commend you to the word of his grace, so continually pointing that to saying that the gospel is essentially the word of grace that points them to their heavy, heavenly inheritance, that they need the gospel continually and so they can have their eyes pointed towards their heavenly pastor, Jesus. The next one that we can see, this is the ninth one, we're getting close, I promise, is uh, verse 33 through 35. I have coveted no one else's silver or gold or apparel. You know yourselves that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we, tr- we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When you look at 34 through, uh, 33 through 35, what we can see is uh, a quality is that they must be generous with their money and with their work. When I say with their work, as in they work hard. They must be generous. Number nine is that they're generous with their money and with their work. I coveted no one silver or gold. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. We, we, we saw a couple weeks ago that Paul's the one that paid his own bill the whole time and paid his own bill to even minister. And so uh, his hands uh, worked hard and that he didn't, he didn't require any money from them. So pastors, like everyone else, can be susceptible to greed. Uh, and so the, our pastor's ministry should not be... Uh, given into or look like there's people that are greedy that are going on. A pastor also needs to work hard. Uh, he says, you saw that these hands minister to my needs. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul tells them, if you don't work, you don't eat. You, have, you need to have a good work ethic. And he's saying pastors, leaders, church leaders also should work hard. Uh, but I want you to notice one other thing. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard, we must in this way help the weak. That's an interesting little phrase that he puts there, help the weak. He's talking about working hard, and then he says, help the weak. Now, remember the, the kind of big picture context is he's been raising money all over the, all the cities to take to Jerusalem so that he can help those who are poor. So in Paul's kind of last thing that he's ever going to tell the people, he points them to people that are weak. Tim Keller, commenting on this, says, The Apostle Paul viewed ministry to the poor as so important that it was one of the last things he admonished the Ephesian church to do before he left them for the last time. In his farewell address, Paul was able to ground this duty and the teaching of Jesus that we must help the poor by, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it's, better to bless, it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, you don't use your last words without saying something that is all important to you. For Paul, it was don't only preach, but help the poor. But help the poor. And so we need to be generous people, not greedy in order to help the poor so that we can meet both physical and spiritual needs. We need to, need to be willing to do both of those. The last one we can see is verse 36 through 38. Now, just watch this. Uh, and he had said these things. He knelt down and prayed with them. And here it is. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful because of all, because most of all, because the word he had spoken, that he would not see his face again. And then they took him to the ship. So like, they're, they're sorrowful, they're kissing him, they're hugging him, they're embracing him, they're crying, they're praying with him, and they love him so much, they're, they're sad that they'll never see him again, and they're literally walking him all the way to the ship so they can see him for the last, I, I want to watch and know you and see you as long as I possibly can until I know that I'll never see you again. So what we see with Paul and his relationship with the Ephesian elders is they had a deep love for each other. Number 10, love flock. Love them. Love the people. Love the people. Now, this is Paul dealing with the Ephesian elders. So it's clear that Paul had a deep love for them and they had a deep love for him. What I think is also clear is that the Ephesian elders 
are going to walk away from this when they go back to the congregates in, El- in, in, in Ephesus, and they're going to love those, those people that way as well. They're going to, just like Paul, go back to the church and love them. Uh, Tony Morita says this, a pastor isn't a cowboy, he's not a CEO, he's not a rock star. He's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. Shepherds love their sheep. Shepherds are willing to lay down their life for the sheep, as Jesus was for us. And so it's clear here that Paul has a deep warmth and a deep love for these people. And it's visibly noticed here in verses 36 through 38 as they say goodbye. I even think that maybe when this is happening, that Michael W. Smith song is kind of playing in the background. Friends are friends forever. If you don't know who that is, you can look it up. That was a long time ago. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. But if this was a movie, that would be the song playing in the background. Um, but the point is this, right? <laughs> they, they clearly had a deep affection for each other. They clearly had a deep affection for each other. And that's the kind of, uh, I think... Without a doubt, that's the kind of mindset that the Ephesian elders walk back into Ephesus having for their people. That they love them dearly. They love them dearly. You should love the people that you've been called to minister to. So I just want to conclude this way and let you know this. Um, Remedy, I I love you dearly. I love you dearly. Um, And I am here for the long haul. I'm not going anywhere. I am here as long as the Lord has me. I have no plans ever of leaving. I told Christy, this is the last house I'm ever buying. I'm never moving again. So that's it. I'm done moving. I've moved too many times. I can't stand it. And so I'm here for the long haul, and I love you. Joe loves you. Jack loves you dearly. And the future elders that would ever come here, which the Holy Spirit would appoint, as we see in verse 28, the Holy Spirit makes overseers. The Holy Spirit would appoint elders one day. Uh, They will love you. That will be one of the things that we want to make sure we see before they become an elder, that they love you dearly. Um, We want to love you, and we want to serve you well. And we desire for the long haul, as our deep affections that the Lord has given us for you uh, are being seen and understood, that we have these, that you have those, but more, more than anything, that those things are just kind of uh, mirrors of the deep affections that we all have for Christ. Deep affections that we have for Christ. We want to lead you well. We want to see Jesus worshipped here in this church. And we want to see Jesus do mighty things in this city. Mighty things. So let's conclude by looking at verse 24, because it's so amazing. I think it's a great concluding verse. So this isn't just a pastor verse right now. This is every one of us. Let's all think of this verse as how we want to live. I do not account of my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. You know your course. You know your course, that you finish your course well, and the ministry that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's do this. Let's not account our life of any value, but instead put all of our lives into the hands of God and say, you're more precious than all reality. Your will is more precious than my own. And Lord, help me by the power of the Holy Spirit finish the course that you've set me out on. We all have different courses and we want to be faithful to that. Help me faithfully finish that course and help us continually testify to the gospel of grace what's happened in our own lives and what can happen in the lives of those that don't know Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us now as we continue in worship through song and the Lord's Supper, as we take upon the Lord's Supper, remembering your body broken and your blood shed, that that we are the church that you spilled your blood for, and we pray, Lord, that we would would remember that and celebrate that and worship worship you because of it. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.